The Primary Care Podcast is written and edited by a family physician for an audience of other physicians, nurse practitioners, physicians, assistants, residents, medical students interested in primary care topics. This is not a podcast for patients and should not be used as medical advice. This is also a personal podcast produced in my own time and solely reflecting my personal opinions. Statements of this podcast do not reflect the views or policies of my employer, past or present, or any other organization with which I may be affiliated. Thank you for listening to the Primary Care Podcast. I'm Dr. Mark List, here to bring you the latest news, guidelines, and updates from primary care sources around the globe. Keeping it under 15 minutes long because you're in a hurry and I'm not that smart. Welcome back to the podcast, uh, Party People. Dr. Mark List here, primarycarepod at gmail.com. Uh, we today are talking about resistant hypertension. Great, great topic. Uh, we've all experienced it in primary care. Uh, the patient who, uh, despite everything that you are doing by the book, you have them on max dose, uh, antihypertensives, uh, still uh, blood pressure not under good control, super at risk. Uh, what do you do? What do we do? Well, uh, fear not. For today, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all primary care providers, that unto you this day is born a podcast topic to solve resistant hypertension. Uh, Probably not solve, but uh, let's get into it. Uh, So what is resistant hypertension? Okay, by definition, by definition, resistant hypertension is defined as blood pressure that remains above goal despite concurrent use of three antihypertensive agents from different classes, one of which should be a diuretic, uh, and then of course we have ACE inhibitors, ARBs and calcium channel blockers are the three best ones. Now, uh, in general, it's important that similar goals for blood pressure and hypertensive patients, doesn't matter if they have resistant hypertension, not resistant hypertension, uh, period. So how common is resistant hypertension? Oh, I can't, oh, hard to say resistant really fast. How common is it? Well, between 8 to 20% of patients, and that's in general pretty broad. Uh, they talk about 12 to 15% um, is, is a more... Uh, exact number, but based on lots and lots of different trials, uh, we've seen resistant hypertension in uh, actual uh, studies performed. So that's kind of where that 8 to 20 range comes from. Uh, The AHA recommendations or AHA guidelines say somewhere between 12 to 15 percent of the population with hypertension will have resistant hypertension. So more about, you know, more than one in 10 of your patients that you're going to be treating for hypertension, you're going to really struggle to get them under good control. So uh, the first thing the recommendation is make sure that we are documenting and diagnosing the blood pressure accurately. So this means in office, you know, making sure your nurses are or you are appropriately checking the blood pressure, you know, not crossing the feet, making them calm down, making sure they haven't just run in uh, the office, let them sit for a while, relax for a little bit. You know, they probably are just outside smoking a cigarette or drinking a Red Bull or something like that. If they're doing ambulatory blood pressuring, making sure that their blood pressure cuff at home is, you know, calibrated and is similar to what you have here in the office. Um, but those, that's the most important thing. Number two is making sure patients are adhering to the regimen, right? This is an incredibly common uh, problem where something around some number between 20 to 40% of patients uh, don't follow their blood pressure regimen appropriately. Now, this can either be due to side effects, can be due to cost, due can be to the number of pills and forgetfulness. Um, as somebody who doesn't have chronic diseases, I can't imagine trying to remember to take three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine blood pressure or medications per day, let alone multiple antihypertensives multiple times per day. In general, though, this is probably where a lot of your benefit will arrive is medication adherence, but it's also the hardest to adapt. I think having conversations, making sure that patients, you have an open dialogue about if they don't like the medicine, if it's too expensive, if they're forgetful, uh, or if they just don't like taking it, 
Um, some, you know, a non-judgmental question where it's, you know, something like, you know, it's pretty common that most of my patients miss blood pressure medicines of the week. How often are you missing your blood pressure? How often does it happen to you? Right. So making it like an open-ended statement about how allowing them to talk and explain their experiences, just because uh, letting them know that it's very normal that patients will miss doses. Um, in our organization, our EMR has a tool that looks at the external med history, so I can see when their pharmacy, when it's been filled at the pharmacy, what dates. So that gives me a pretty good indication about how diligent they've been with their different medications. Um, but again, it's not it's not 100% accurate. Um, they could be filling on time, but then just have a stockpile at home. That happens a lot as well. Um, so that's that's the that's the tricky thing. So uh, it's also important to note that white coat hypertension it happens about twenty to thirty percent of patients with high blood pressure. So ambulatory blood pressure readings very very good. Um, home blood pressure readings good. Ambulatory blood pressure readings good. Uh, as for those people, um, the AHA ACC recommendations. Sorry, this is AHA recommendations from two thousand eighteen. Uh, said that white coat hypertension is about thirty percent of estimated prevalence in, in patients with resistant hypertension. Uh, medication on adherence, another 30-40%. Under treatment, though. Oh, we, we just talked about inaccurate treatment, not 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 measuring it appropriately. Another, another about 20 or 30%. But the biggest percentage of patients with resistant hypertension, up to 65% of patients with resistant hypertension, were undertreated, meaning that they were not at max dose of three blood pressure medicines. And what does this look like in real practice? Um, 2010 Kaiser Permanente in South Car- South Southern California, maybe some of you listeners are in that system, uh, made changes from 2004 to 2010 in their systematic stepwise treatment algorithms, went from 45, sorry, 54% control of blood pressure to 84% control uh, using, again, maximum therapeutic doses of amlodipine, hydrochlorothiazide, uh, lisinopril, etc., so it's also, though, important that we talk about resistant, resistant hypertension patients and lifestyle changes, right? Obesity is a really important, uh, to, is important factor for increasing prevalence of hypertension, right? Visceral uh, adiposity, right? Fat around organs plays a fundamental role in causing high blood pressure, right? Um, we talk about dietary sodium, right? You need to really to have a pretty high, high level of dietary sodium. But in America, a lot of patients definitely have high, are, are at least more sensitive to higher levels of blood of blood sodium, right? Uh, alcohol, uh, you know, got to screen these patients for alcohol use disorders because alcohol use has a significant uh, in, impact on blood pressure, physical inactivity, dietary patterns. And then we're going to talk about two other things, right? So it's important that we talk about all of the other things we just talked about in our last uh, podcast about JNC8, lifestyle interventions play a huge role in resistant hypertension as well. Now, drug-related resistant hypertension, specifically NSAIDs, have a huge impact on blood pressure, right? Alcohol, we just talked about. Um, Herbal compounds like ephedra, I think that's pretty pretty unlikely to be a major cause. People who are chronically taking Zyrtec D, for example, uh, any decongestant, a lot of dietary pills, uh, you know, cause, you know, increase in blood pressure as well. Many patients on stimulants, for example, uh, have issues with blood pressure. We have more and more adults on stimulants than ever before. Oral contraceptives, uh, incredibly common 
uh, can also raise blood pressure. And then for your chronic disease, chronic kidney disease patients, anybody on EPO, erythropoietin, um, can also be causing uh, secondary hypertension from medications. But the most important thing that if your patients with resistant hypertension have not been ruled out, you have to rule out secondary causes of resistant hypertension. Absolutely must, 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 must happen. Have to screen these patients for obstructive sleep apnea. Have to screen these patients for kidney disease. Have to screen these patients for renal artery stenosis. Have to screen them for primary aldosteronism, right? Must. These, that's an absolute no-brainer for resistant hypertension patients. Um, I've never seen... Uh, a, a patient of mine with a FIO causing resistant hypertension, normally we find that in other ways, not as like an underlying diagnosis that is just waiting to be diagnosed. Uh, I thought I had a young person with a FIO, but it turned out it was not. He actually had renal artery stenosis, but based on his presentation, I thought it was going to be a FIO. Um, Cushing disease, hyperparathyroidism can also cause it, and aortic coarctation. So um, again, super duper uncommon FIOs, Cushing's, hyperparathyroidism, and aortic coarctations. Probably less likely to be of higher yield to these patients, but consider those four. But the big four, um, renal disease, obstructive sleep apnea, primary aldosteronism, and renal artery stenosis, period. Now, here is where... um, Here's where we get into the weeds a little bit, right? So when we talk about treatment options for resistant hypertension, again, the most important thing, get them on three medications, calcitonin blocker, thiazide diuretic, HCTZ, ACE inhibitor, or ARB, okay? I don't know why I struggled to say those three classes. I've talked about them for the last two weeks. Now, here's where we can get into expert opinion. So everything we have said so far is not controversial, um, maximize your three drugs, work on lifestyles, look for secondary causes, stop medications that are offending. Not controversial whatsoever. Now it gets into a little more, more of the weeds. The AHA, ACC recommendations talk about switching all patients from thiazide diuretics, your ACTZs, to chlorthaladone. Why? Because chlorthaladone shows a 7 to 8 millimeter difference by switching from HCTZ to a similar daily dose of chlorthaladone. Okay. Um, now this, this is probably likely to a couple different things. Number one is it probably is a little stronger naturally. But number two is hydrochlorothiazide doesn't induce a predictable, um, urine output of sodium after you get a GFR under 45. Okay. Chlorthaldone does all the way down to 30, right? So there's probably a lot to do with that as well. Uh, but interestingly, so this was the, this was their recommendation. Okay. But a recent trial here, February 18th, 2020, actually talks against this recommendation, uh, shows that this is now, this is based on insurance claims data, right? But basically rates of myocardial infarctions, heart failure, hospitalizations, and stroke were all similar between treatment groups with HCTZ or chlorthaldone, but chlorthaldone carried a significantly higher risk for hypokalemia, hyponatremia, acute renal failure, chronic kidney disease, and type 2 diabetes. Now, probably the patients who are on chlorthaldone are the super sick patients anyways, um, but again, I don't think it's necessarily causing type 2, type 2 diabetes. But basically, there was no good indications for switching from HCTZ to chlorothaladone and in fact carried a lot more risk. Uh, and in fact, there's never been any any statistical proof that chlorothaladone lowers your risk from 
major adverse cardiac events or mortality better than HCTZ does. Um, but again, it is a little bit stronger when we're talking about a number. Again, I, so I, this makes me disagree with this expert opinion um, from this uh, 2018 uh, AHA guideline on treating resistant hypertension. So that's number one change that I'd like to talk about. Number two, and not necessarily a change because they also talk about in this article, but another really important factor is making sure that you're taking, having patients take blood pressure medicines at night. There's a statistically significant benefit to having patients take blood pressure medicines at night due to the way that some patients have nocturnal spikes in blood pressure. Uh, so certainly if your patients are not taking their blood pressure medicines at night uh, and they're having resistant hypertension and they're actually taking their medicines, again, having them take them at night. Now, the big question would be, if taking them at night makes them miss more doses, then it probably is not worth them taking it later in the day or at nighttime. Um, another change, uh, this was a study in March 2019, March 2019. Uh, basically, if you have a black patient or an African patient, um, this the reason I say African is this study was specifically done in African patients, but amlodipine was by far and away, calcium blockers were by far and away uh, better regimen agents than hydrochlorothiazide uh, or ACE inhibitors. Now, again, with resistant hypertension, it's really important that if you have a black patient or an African-American patient, that you are definitely getting them on high doses as soon as possible, high doses as soon as possible of calcium channel blockers more than any other blood pressure medicine, as those have probably the most predictable um, early use uh, in hypertension, specifically in resistant hypertension as well. So going on up to date, we look at resistant hypertension treatments. They talk again about choosing, choosing chlorothaladone or an indapamide, indapamide over HCTZ. And again, I, I, I would argue that we wouldn't do that. Now, certainly it can lower blood pressure, but at the cost of a lot of other issues. Again, going back to update, if you have a GFR less than 30, they talk about using something like furosemide or torsemide or Bumex. Uh, just because under 30, you're not going to get nearly as much effect on your HCTZ and your chlorothaladone. Next case, don't be afraid to use spironolactone. Again, you have to be careful about hyperkalemia in spironolactone, but has a significant benefit with spironolactone um, as a potential effect. If you just cannot get people under control, uh, some people also use uh, hydralazine. Again, evidence for that's very weak. Beta blockers have... Obviously, we didn't talk about beta blockers in this entire discussion, but beta blockers also have a small role to play. Um, certainly, uh, very little effect, but it's not a zero effect. So certainly, um, choosing a beta blocker could still be optional as well. You know, we talked about hydralazine, talked about clonidine, talked about guafenosine, uh, talked about minoxidil in this article. I think all those things are okay. Um, I think that when you're scraping that bottom of the barrel, um, you could certainly think about adding numerous regimens. Again, clonidine, hydralazine, guafenosine, minoxidil, and some of your other beta blockers. Uh, once, you're, once you're choosing those medicines to lower blood pressure, you really have to be careful about the benefit. You have to be really close in monitoring those medications, not because they're necessarily super dangerous medicines, but the cost-benefit ratio, meaning what are my side effects I'm gaining and what are my negative body consequences I'm gaining for the small decrease in blood pressure I'm adding to those regimens. So again, certainly something we can think about, uh, other medications, but again, 
the I don't want to talk about all these extra medicines. I think I think spironolactone is underutilized. Uh, I think that um, again, I think I've I've read that whole switch them from HDTZ to chlorothaladone, but I wanted to throw in that recent evidence actually says that's probably not a great idea um, because again expert opinion says well we know chlorothaladone works seven to eight millimeters of mercury better so therefore we should use it but the evidence says maybe we shouldn't again i think going back to resistant hypertension there's key factors and the key factors are make sure they're taking their medicines and if they're not why not number two if they don't have a workup for secondary causes of hypertension do that number three stop NSAIDs stop oral contraceptives, stop stimulants, stop the offending medications, and then work on lifestyle changes, work on obstructive sleep apnea, work on their sleep, work on their diet, work on their exercise, and that's where your money will be. So again, uh, I think getting back to it, certainly there are other medications that can be tried, but I think the focus should be on non-pharmacological treatments as always. I'm a broken clock, but again, super important we stick to the basics. Oh, and Bob has given me the time's up signal, so uh, it's time. Uh, so if anybody had any questions, concerns, please send them to me at primarycarepod at gmail.com. And I'm going to sign off today saying, again, this has been Dr. Mark List for Primary Care Pod. Reminding you once again, you don't have to stay up all night to stay up to date. Please have a wonderful day, and I'll see you next time. All right, Bob, shut it down. <laughs>